Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine afternoon? It's uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, Thursday, the 1st of September. I cannot believe we're already in September. I cannot believe we've gotten here so quickly. Nobody asked me. We've already, uh, eight months have already come and gone in this year. We're actually much closer to the finish of the year than we are the beginning, which is just astonishing because the year has absolutely flown by. Summer has also flown by, right? I think I talked about this before, but next month, man, oh, that, oh, my favorite season, my second favorite season, spring's my first, but my second favorite season, uh, and certainly my favorite season in the second half of the year, it's starting to to wind down. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, you need something to like, that. that, what's that? What's the equivalent of like a bump of like glucose, you know, like a little bit of extra sugar, uh, but for the soul, you know, um, and not in like a bad way, like a tiny little amount that's still within healthy uh, ranges, obviously, not, you know, but like a little bit, right? Just a, a, a soul appropriate bit of, uh, of joy, you know, whatever that, what is that, what is that word? I don't know. It's, uh, well, anyway, I've experienced it. I, I think I kind of have the word. It's, uh, VMware Explore, right? VMware Explore is our big uh, uh, VMware-wide uh, conference, right? And it's here in San Francisco, my hometown. Uh, well, not my hometown, my the city in which I have my home today, right? The town in which I have my home. And uh, it's just been great. There's just been a ton of people from all around the world that have converged on San Francisco. And uh, this is not a spring event per se, but it's an amazing event, right? And um, just a lot of really cool people there. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. Just been a lot of fun. Uh, seeing all friends uh, from all walks of life, you know, thousands and thousands of people in the in the event. So I've just loved it. I've just been, it's just been such a good week catching up with people who started to trickle in as early as last week. Uh, and, you know, it's been hectic. Everyone's here. Um, but uh, it's hard to overstate just how lucky I feel to be a part of this team at this critical juncture. You know, I'm working with some of the smartest people in the world. I talked to somebody earlier and uh, they were describing their time uh, at Sun Microsystems, you know, and uh, obviously I don't expect that the trajectory of one will mirror the other. Certainly, I, do, I hope not, but I feel like I have those same wonderful things going for me when I talk about what it's like to work on the spring team at VMware, right? There's just this sense of, uh, we can do it, right? There's a sense of like, um, you know, you know we're, we're, we are where we need to be to, to change the world, which is what we want to do, right? We're always trying to change the world to make it better. Uh, and I just, I love that. I love that energy. It really, I don't know. I just, it's just overwhelmed me this week. You know, it's just been such a wonderful week uh, catching up with people. And I even had a, f uh, a small group of like seven people over to my home uh, last night. And I, 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 I played bartender and we ordered in, you know, different kinds of food. We had Chinese food. We have vegan food. We had, uh, um, you know, some good old fashioned greasy junk food. I mean, it's just a bunch of like different kinds of cuisine and great people. And I, you know, <sighs> that's the, they always, I always say this and I've always said it and everybody always says this and it's true. The best part of any given conference is the hallway track. It's those, uh, uh, out of class conversations that you have that, that, uh, inspire and, uh, motivate and, uh, um, rejuvenate. You know, I love those conversations and I, I make it a point whenever, uh, there's a conference going on, uh, that I have and interested in, but at which, at, at which I'm not speaking, I, I especially make it a point to make sure I'm there for those extra conversations. So uh, it's just been a great week. I wish you all were here. I hope you were. Um, and if not, a lot of those videos, I'm sure, will be online eventually. And um, 
in the meantime, in the meantime, my friends, we have, we have, um, you know, an amazing show, an amazing show uh, this week. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we, we've got Dr. Krista Volder, one of my favorite doctors, along with doctors Seuss, uh, and who, and, um, strange, uh, and so on, right? Uh, and, uh, yeah, and, and Dr. DeVolder is a, he works on the Spring Tools, uh, group, in the Spring Tools group. He's awesome. He, uh, you know, trust me, if you've used anything, if you've used the support in Eclipse for Spring, or if you've used the support, uh, in, uh, VS Code for Spring, or, or indeed, if you've used many other things, you've probably used his work. It's being used by literally millions of people every day, right? He's um, instrumental in, uh, in in making, uh, building job applications as easy as possible. So I was just really happy to get a chance to catch up with him. He he joined the, or the organization, he joined the spring team, I think uh, on the order of a few months before I did. So we've known each other for a long time and I uh, was just so happy. Um, to, uh, to get a chance to catch up with him and record the conversation and share it with you also. Without further ado, my friends, here he is, the one, the only, the amazing, the legendary Dr. Christopher. That's a little bit better. Okay, so we did it. We're, we're live, we're recording. Um, Good to see you, man. I We've just, we, you and I just hung out in uh, Seattle a minute ago. Um. Before we get underway, can you tell the audience who you are and what your name is and what it is you think you do around here? So I don't butcher it. Okay, yeah. So my my name is uh, Chris Devolder, and I've been for a long, long time working on tools. Like what you, what I mean by tools is things that you people most people think of as integrated development environment and stuff like that. So like VS Code and Spring. Spring Tool Suite. Is, right. So Spring Tool Suite is the longest thing I've ever worked on, I think, for the longest time. And then later in VS Code came along, and then uh, we've done some things in VS Code with language servers. And maybe pretty soon, I will actually get some exposure to IntelliJ. Uh... One of one of those people you always make fun of in the audience who is still using Eclipse. <laughs> I don't make fun of Eclipse. I used to make fun of NetBeans, but even that I don't make fun of now because it's it's fine. You know, it's I was wrong. <sighs> um. So, uh, right. So you're you're so you're not you're you're Chris Devolder. You're Doctor Devolder too, right? You're actually a, a PhD. Is yeah, that no, that's true. But I don't really think that should really matter in our industry. I, it, it, it does and it doesn't. Obviously, there are plenty of really brilliant people who have done a lot without a proper education, but I always like to recognize those that do have a, a, a formal education. I don't, so I'm a big... I would like to joke that what this degree means is that you were you refused to leave the university and you sticked around for so long until they finally said Come on, we'll give you your PhD. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're one of my favorite doctors, along with Dr. Seuss, Strange, Sire, and uh, you know who. So I'm I'm uh, I'm glad to glad you're on the team, my friend. When did you join the Spring Team? Uh, when did I join the Spring Team? Uh, let me see. Two thousand. 
was it two, 2000, I guess, when I joined VMware? 2000 or 2010? Yeah, that's it. What year is right? Uh, 2022. Yeah, 2010, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say 2000. Uh, I remember we're, we're joined VMware about the same time, I think. Yeah, I think you're a little earlier, just a few months there, but but still, yeah, yeah 2010. 2010, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was recently, it feels like to me, but of course that was more than a decade ago, so it wasn't recently, and uh, we need only look at photos of ourselves from then to appreciate how not recent it was. Um, what brought you to VMware? Why, why join the spring team instead of like, I don't know, finance or working on the next big cat picture website at, in Silicon Valley or something? Like there's so many places for a talented person like you to go. It's just the right opportunity for me that, that came along at the right time. I think that's, it wasn't, to be honest, I'd like to say I joined because of spring, but it's not really the case. Oh dear. Okay, go on. So the no, it's just uh, the opportunity was there when I needed. I was looking for a way out of the academic world, and oh. so happened that there was a team, a team in Vancouver, working on Spring uh, Groovy and Grails tools, Spring tools, and that seemed like a really good fit with what I've been doing at the university meaning they were doing mostly eclipse plugins there at the moment what were you doing um in university and by the way that's vancouver british columbia not washington yeah vancouver british columbia the that was the university of british columbia okay so what i was doing there is i was a faculty member and teaching undergraduate courses and graduate courses computer science Cool, cool. So, so, oh wow. And That's then I had a few research projects that got some funding from IBM to build Eclipse plugins, and that's how I got into the Eclipse space. And oh, I had no idea. <laughs> oh wow, that's that's really crazy. Eclipse kind of stuck with me, as you see. I was still doing Eclipse now, so I guess if their goal of IBM was to get people to use Eclipse, they were successful. <laughs> Yeah, they were. I mean, it's still, I think, I think it's that still yeah. probably the most widely used IDE in the Java space, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was in the time they were doing a big push on Eclipse, trying to get Eclipse to be the next big thing, I guess. And, and it was, and, and is, you know. Well, Eclipse at the time, I mean, people kind of like to make fun of Eclipse and dish, dish kind of crap on it or whatever word you want to use but but you could say eclipse really changed the landscape yeah is what people want from an ide because at the time that was a fantastic ide compared to anything else you before that what were we using uh, probably emacs or something right well so i i was using i had various run-ins because when i got into software when i was when i started doing professional software um and the, the the everything all the the tools gravitated gravitated towards the visual studio approach right and so you had these tools with lots of wizards and as as often as as possible WYSIWYG 
what you see is what you get experiences and all that stuff. So I remember like J builder and uh, uh, J developer from, which was, I think there's, I think there's some relationship there that has now since escaped me, but there is some connection between it's one of fork or the other or some, I don't understand. There's a connection there. If I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken with J developer and, and J builder. So I, I was using uh, J builder, right. That's Borland. And that was a, it was a monster. It was an amazing piece of software, but it was very much a full kitchen sink, you know, kind of thing. And the fact that you could write code almost seemed secondary, right? <clears throat> and um, every other thing required custom integrations there, right? And this is, I think, uh, this is also before Maven took on, right? And so a lot of the stuff that you could now today just outsource to your build tool had to be supported in a custom way for each IDE. And uh, and then J, then J Developer, I think that was Oracle's thing, you know, similarly was also this huge, massive satellite, this little con con constellation of plugins and all that. And it just felt very big. And I don't know how to describe it. Maybe it's just the quality of the machines I was using at the time, but I remember finding Eclipse and it felt very comparatively light and code was at the center of everything. Right. You couldn't you, it was very hard to arrange the panels in such a way that you had this little viewport into the code. And then the rest of the window was all just panels and plugins and wizards and all that stuff that crowded you out of your own code, uh, like in J developer or J builder. Well, uh, I guess you were using different things than I because what I, I remember what I was using before Eclipse was Emacs. Oh, yeah. I mean, Emacs is awesome. I love Emacs, but yeah. it didn't have a server back then. Emacs, no. yeah, Emacs is one of those things that uh, you you don't have to you you is you don't have to have anything else because it can do everything. Like it, <laughs> I mean, it, it's an email program too. Oh you yeah, can email. And, you can edit your email. You can send your email. You can edit your source code. But it's but it's, it's kind of, then you have to program it in Lisp, right? You can write any you can program this Lisp code. Yeah, and then spend more time programming Emacs than actually getting any work done. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a there's a a school of philosophical thought that ponders the question: Are you and I just Emacs plugins that we don't know about? Right? Like, is our conscious thought just a plugin somewhere in somebody's Emacs installation? It's not been decided. There's no way to know. It's just too powerful. Um, when I boot Linux into my Emacs distribution. And then I boot, you know, uh, Emacs inside of Linux inside of Emacs. Is that wrong? Is it weird? I don't know. There's no way to know. It's it's impossible. It's unknowable. It is Emacs. But I, I vastly prefer Emacs uh, to V or Vim, just because you know Emacs gets updated a couple times a year with some nice mm -hmm. features, whereas V had what ten years be between updates. I was like, you know, that's not okay. That's not going to work for me. I need something that. Uh, I don't know why people make fun of V for the weird, uh, you know, the, you know, the most asked, one of the most asked questions on Stack Overflow is how do I get out of V, right? VI, you mean? VI. Yeah, I call it, yeah, V, VI, uh, how to get out of VI, right? Like, and, uh, <laughs> but I, I, and they got a, they, you know, people, it's a meme now, right? People make fun of VI for, uh, for that. And I've, well, I've had to Google that. So I've had to, I know that exact, I know which Stack Overflow question you're talking about. Right. Yeah. I've accidentally started up the I and then couldn't get out of it. <laughs> it's like, but that's my point. Like Emacs isn't that much easier to my mind. I mean, I, you know, I, I can do it now. I know I've been doing it for decades, but 
there's still a, it's a weird dance your fingers have to do just to close. Yeah, the I still, I still uh, use Emacs now and again, because okay. like when you're, when you're logging into one of those cloud things and you don't have any windows and you want to have an editor. Yeah. Emacs Although is even... kind of one of the things you can use. And since the, the key is still, I still have the key shortcuts in my fingers. So I still know yeah. how to use it. So I love it. I mean, I wrote, a, so I I can do almost everything in Emacs except for write Java code. And I know I could do it today. I know there's a way to do it. And I've gotten it, I've demonstrated it. I even got it working so that in theory it could have. But basically I wrote a whole book in Emacs, right? Um, uh, I love Emacs. I can, I can live there. I keep an Emacs session running somewhere all the time. Now it's gotten to the point where there's this smart, you can actually use language servers, right? And we'll talk about that in a second because that's a huge thing. So now I can do competent Java editing in Emacs, which is crazy to me. I can get auto completion and control space and all that stuff. But uh, there was always some reasonably good support for Java editing in Emacs. I don't, I don't know. I never even tried. But, uh, but I, what I found with Emacs is it's always, but what's compared to like, say, Eclipse or IntelliJ or VS Code, with Emacs, it's a bit harder to set up things so it works right. Like, yeah. and I don't have the patience, but there are ways to get it to do what you want. You just have to find the right little li lisp snippet to put in your .emacs file. And <laughs> somebody probably wrote it somewhere on the internet already. And there are plugins that do, like they scan your Java code and index all your symbols and you can navigate. And but yeah, but, but uh, I, but I, I, I always felt I got the patience to figure out how to set it up so it actually works properly. So, right. Well, I, I did a blog back in January twenty first, twenty nineteen, called "Getting Emacs Ready for Writing Part One," and uh, basically, I the thing that made it like I can do everything. I can write a book. I can do everything else in Emacs. I can check email. I can. Uh, you know, I mean, you could, there's calendar systems in there. There's chat systems in Emacs. There's, you know, you can do everything in Emacs, but I, I couldn't write Java code, but then thanks to you and uh, the spring tools team, uh, there was a language server for spring for spring boot in particular. Right. Um, and, and there's a Java language server as well. And so this article that I wrote shows how to set up, um, Mega Mega Nada Mega Nada. I don't know how to spell it. M e g h a n a d a. And uh, basically, it, it's a uh, you use Alpa, the package manager, and you can install it from there. Copy and paste the configuration into your .emacs file. Were you, were you able to get these language servers working with Emacs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'll, I mean, I'm we're because, doing a um, podcast, but I'll show you my screen as well. See that? Like. For the audience that can't see it, I'm showing him the image yeah, of, of auto-completion happening in a Springwood app inside of a Emacs. And that's all because of the Springwood. Because uh, my understanding was that it's actually not that easy to get it to work with the different... the different. So our, we only, the Spring Tools team, we developed this uh, Spring Boot language server, but we only officially support VS two things like VS Code and uh, Eclipse. Yeah, I think this is somebody's third-party plugin integrating the language server. Um, okay. Delegating. Yeah, that, that makes sense because there is like the when you read the marketing 
materials for language right. servers. It makes it sound like it's a magic, right? Somebody makes a language server. Now everybody gets all this functionality, but right. in reality, it's not 100% like that. It's more right. like you make a language server and then you make a, a little wrapper thing for your client. But right. you still have to make a wrapper. Like if you want to make something work in VS Code, you have to make this wrapper that's that kind glue. of glues, glues it into VS Code specifically. Yeah. And then if you want to make it work in Eclipse, you have to get LSP4E and write some Eclipse plugin with the glue. And if you wanted to do make it work in Emacs, I guess you probably have to do the same thing. And somebody did that, but we didn't do that. So right. I mean. You know, <laughs> I think you and I'd be the first customers to try it if somebody did do that officially. But uh, I tried it; it works. It's well. This is 2019, so yeah. Nearly so three mean, years. somebody must have done that work because we didn't yeah. do that. And, and, I don't and think that's, you can just like throw the jar file into something no, 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 no. would work. Yeah. No, I mean clearly, but that is still a testament to how awesome language servers are. That you can write a thin. Yeah, it's a, it's a good idea. It's just him. I think they overmarket a little bit. Oh, yeah. uh, there is still yeah. some work on on the. Like it's not as, I mean, it's better than repeating, re-implementing all the functionality from scratch, right? Sure. Yeah. And so, I think about the success of Visual Studio Code uh, and how it has competent support for dozens of languages now, right? Like it's good support. And a lot of that is just because they could repackage binaries and uh, create, the, create the glue code for the VS Code plugin model. Wrapping and adapting the existing well, binary. VS Code has played a very good strategically, I think. They because they're the first one that get the support usually. If somebody's gonna make a language server, then the first thing they want to work in is VS Code because that's right. the home, that's the home of the language server, I guess. The official right. reference thing. So if you if you don't work in that, then I guess you don't have one. So <laughs> yeah. Um so, okay, let's talk about that. So we, we keep on mentioning language service. Let's work backwards here a little bit first, because I, I would I would love to talk to you about this. To me, Eclipse, you're, you're absolutely right. It changed the world. It's, uh, a, it is, I still think it's probably the most widely used in the Java ecosystem, right? I know that if you conduct a poll today uh, in a conference full of like the myopic, if you go through the myopic lens of what does Josh Long see at a conference talking to developers who are taking time out from their evenings away from their family to go learn about the latest cutting edge stuff in Java. Well then, yeah, I'm going to see half, half IntelliJ Eclipse, but I'll bet dollars to donut. There's still more Eclipse out there uh, than, than yeah, IntelliJ. I, I don't know what we could base that on. I don't know. I haven't yeah. seen any numbers recently. I, it's really extensive and, and pervasive and uh, and for good reason. It works, it's reliable, It's it gets updates frequently. It's, you know, why change? Heck, a bunch of us on the spring but, team. Uh, what's, what's more ironic even than that is that all those people who like to hate on Eclipse, they they love VS Code and they're running Eclipse in a little language server. Right. <laughs> You're just you're picking apart different parts of the, uh, the the the. So it's like you're running Eclipse with a like VS Code user interface in front of it. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so so I loved so Eclipse is to me very interesting. But what was the use case uh, that you had originally worked on Eclipse plugins for? Like, were you trying to build developer 
tooling for IDE for software or some other integration? Well, the, the, thing I, the thing I was working on the most when I was a professor in UBC was this, uh, uh, the name is kind of unfortunate because the project was called jQuery, but has nothing to do with jQuery that we know today. <laughs> okay, so the, the jQuery that we know today, this JavaScript framework right. came after after that project and they just kind of took the name because they liked it and okay. didn't see there was anything important associated with it but uh that plugin was and that was an eclipse plugin which would kind of take all your asts from your java code and turn them into traverse all those asts parse them into a logic database like prolog style Oh, wow. And you could write queries over it, and you could find whatever you want to find in your code and visualize that in a kind of a browser-like user interface. So you <laughs> could generate your own type hierarchy or your own package explorer or your own call hierarchy, or you could do some very customized things. Like you could say, find me any of the methods that are overridden by this method that are not calling this other thing. And you could find like bugs in your code that way, or wow. and it, had, it had this really neat uh, kind of browser interface where you could build up your own browser with exactly the bits in it that you wanted. So it's, I found that when I was using that, I was using that myself to develop that thing. And the, the query engine under it was like a, logic programming language, which yeah. I created during my PhD thesis for for some code generation I wanted to do. But this, this I was relying on this and I kind of felt like I could write, uh, I'm not sure that was a good thing, but I could write way more convoluted and complicated code because I had such a good browser to see all the tangled mess I created. So, <laughs> But then afterwards, I when I became when I started working for a spring, the spring team in Vancouver, mm -hmm. I tried to keep that thing and keep using it. But it's sort of like it's it's one of those projects. As soon as there is a new Java version and a new AST version, and it sort of starts crumbling, right? Unless somebody puts in the hard work to keep all those things up to date. So, and I didn't really have the time to do that anymore. It's a shame. Is it open source? Is it out there still? It's open source, yeah, but it's probably Eclipse version 1.8 or something. Oh my. Yeah. Well, that's wow. Okay, that sounds really useful even today because, you know, increasingly there's this scale up and out, right, for all software code bases and the larger you get the the more regimented you need to be about how you yeah. add more it, to the it was a very useful tool but the, the hardest challenge for this particular tool was the uh the performance requirements like because the database wasn't necessarily the most efficient thing in sure. the world so and you can imagine that you could think of a class file as a very efficient binary storage format, right? It's a very efficient binary storage format for a database containing information about Java code. But when we want to query that with this logic language, it gets it gets turned into something that's much more like a relational database. More normalized. 
So imagine storing every database, every bytecode in your class file as a row in a database table, basically. Wow. So you can imagine that you get very quickly humongous storage requirements. And if you want to query this thing, it takes a lot of time as well. So the challenge was that we want a very responsive user interface because we want to have something where I can click on something and immediately see a tree of all the information I just queried, right? Right. So that was a challenge. And the bigger, the I remember, uh, you probably know Mick Kirsten. You know? Yeah, desktop. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, love that guy. He was he was telling to me, oh yeah, yeah. Well, if you can get to a point where you know you can parse a thousand classes, that should be plenty, right? Nobody's going to have a thousand classes. <laughs> <laughs> I challenge you to find a project nowadays that has only a thousand classes. Yeah, does that include transitive class path libraries? Uh, or oh well, just so yeah, that's comment. where we sometimes try to cut corners, like. You could parse them or not. You could parse the bytecode or not. But we try to parse as I mean, for the tool to be useful, it needs to have at least everything you reference. Oh but yeah. Otherwise, it kind of like it's like kind of an incomplete picture, right? You can't you can't traverse the call graph because it goes into some bytecode that you didn't parse. Just this black hole of like yeah. information. Well, that's a, that still seems really useful, though. And you're right, that meta model, like, I, you know, Salesforce has a meta table system, right? So you can write, you can create custom tables in Salesforce, but they in turn store the schema for that table in some other database, right? So you're not creating actual records on their database, I guess. I think you're, like, creating, they've got a schema table, that has descriptions of columns as rows. You know what I'm saying? Like they actually have to, they have to be a database on top of a database. So every query gets resolved twice, once against the outer meta database, and then in, in turn, it gets compiled into a query that gets resolved against the lower one, right? Uh, and that, that can create for some incredible, incredible performance uh, uh, oddities. I mean, I'm sure it's fine now. It's been 10, 15 years since they released a, Apex and all that, but I always thought about that. I always think like, gosh, you know, this the idea of having every single bytecode be a row somewhere is <laughs> yeah, but we didn't do that actually. So I wanted to do that, but I knew it wasn't going to work for us. So we we had to kind of just parse the things that we thought were useful, and so so or the things that you would want to query the most. So things like there's a field here, and there's a field access, or there is a method here, and there's a method access or there's a call to a constructor. I found the calls to constructors was very interesting usually. Because that, that's one of the most often questions I have is like, where is this thing created, right? Yeah, yeah. If Fine. I have a class, I want to know who's creating instances of that class and chasing that down with this tool is very easy. Yeah, and now we have some of that, not not nearly to the flexible extent about which you just spoke, but we have some of that in our tools today, right? Eclipse and uh, IntelliJ and all that. They can all, you give them a type and they can show you the, find, the, the, the usages of or the creation of those instances in the code yeah. base, which that must be one heck of a reverse index they've got going behind the scenes there. I don't know how it works at all, but 
Um, yeah, Eclipse Eclipse put a lot of work into these indexes too. Yeah. Uh, so do you? So when you created that plugin, there's two parts to it. I imagine there's the actual implementation of the engine that allows yeah. you to query and parse and ingest all this data, and then there's the actual representation within the IDE, which I so I there, there, yeah, the it, there, there's there's kind of there was three pieces sort of like there's a user interface which was a very generic browser, right? Uh, basically, any you could write a logic query, and a, a query is like an expression with ands and ors, right? With a right. bit of a prolog-like syntax, yeah. and it binds. The result of a query is usually a tuple. Right. right, because there are variables that get bound, and then you could say make this into a tree, basically. So you could that way you could create, you could with with a few lines of code you could describe either a package explorer or a type hierarchy view or a call graph, or some weird mix that you came up with yourself that has methods and types mixed together in a certain way. So the, the levels of the tree would have a meaning to you. Like you could say, okay, well, I see a class here and the, the node below it means that this is a method called from this class. Right. And this is a method defined in this class. So you could write these queries and then structure the tree with a few lines of code. So you could yeah. write, write uh, queries like that. You could write queries to find things you didn't want to find, right? Right. Like things that you sh that shouldn't exist, like uh, let's say you created some factory method and you're wondering if somebody's still calling the constructor when you're not supposed to. Oh, so you oh, could wow. write a query for that and then say, hey, bad, fix this. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you could use this in a few different ways. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I I I kind of missed using it after a while, but I just don't have the time to keep it working basically oh well that's a bummer yeah, it's gotten so much more complicated since those days too like what is java oh the class file oh the definition yeah yeah because those, that's that's from the days before generics so oh java 1.4 then yeah wow wow so that was 2005 when java 5 came out uh and generics with it wow 2005 so that's 17 years ago yes <laughs> yeah long time um, so, okay. So you were looking for a way out of that, but you clearly came, uh, forearmed with some serious, uh, tooling chops. You knew how to build plugins for, uh, Eclipse then, and today the most prolific Java IDE, uh, on the market. What yeah. was, and then you, and you just took a job that seemed like it lined up with your skill set, and it happened to be a nice one, I hope, um, uh, is it, is with like, I, that was a very good move for me. I I really enjoyed I, I I enjoyed working for that team, and I was kind of oblivious to all the VMware stuff because I was in a small little team. Right, with, uh, Andrew Clement, and I'm not sure you might have ever met Andrew Eisenberg. I'm sure you met him somewhere. Yeah, he was in that team, and then later on, Niraj, Niraj Singh came on board. So we were like a really small team with just four people in a little did, office in Vancouver. Did and was, Eisenberg eventually moved to Spring Roo? No, he went to Tasktop. Tasktop. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, is that cool? And then with afterwards, the cloud? I don't know where he went, but he went other places after that. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, I, I met him. I and then I was that a code to cloud? Was that where I would have remembered his name? Do you remember that? I think he was was working on uh, this other project, uh, which is uh, GitHub. In Git, part of GitHub, the code, some kind of code query thing, code quest. Code quest. Because he contacted me at some point. He still remembered my query affin affinities. And he said, Do you are you interested in this? Oh wow. Small world. That's interesting. I would love to catch up with him. Um so okay, so you were so you you joined this team in uh in in Vancouver. Um and what was the first thing you did? Like I'm just the first thing we were working, I was I guess the 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 reason why they wanted somebody on the team was to have more people supporting Groovy Eclipse. Okay, right. So it was Groovy Grails, Groovy Eclipse, and and all of that was part of STS, and also the the Spring Tools kind of came on to that. But the initial push was to support Groovy Eclipse. Okay, so eventually we we created two different distributions for for, for the longest time we had. Um, we had the Spring Tool Suite, but before that, there was even something else, uh, Spring IDE, right? So Spring IDE, then so we created the Spring. There was a, a when I joined, there was two two versions of Spring Tools. I would say just uh, there was like it was they were trying to figure out how to make money, I guess. So they were sort of like there's an open source part and there's a closed source part, and uh, right. But then just after I joined, I think they kind of said, yeah, it doesn't really make much sense. Let's just put everything together in one box and say it's open source. And and the, the mentality in the Spring team like was kind of changing. Like I think that in the beginning, maybe there was a kind of like, like there, there may have been some mentality, like we are the folks who build this commercial thing and it's in our best interest to sell this thing and to compete with other things like it. But then later on, it's like, well, that's not really what we're doing. What we're doing is we're trying to make the best possible for the developers to use Spring. Right. They want to use IntelliJ, that's great. If they want to use Eclipse, that's great. But we're not going to build IntelliJ plugins because someone else is doing that. We're right. just going to do the Eclipse thing and it's not up to us to really like sell this thing or compete. It's more right. like our our goal is not to sell Eclipse, right? Our right, goal, right. Our we support goal it. Is to support people working on Spring. This model was people using Spring are somehow going to contribute to our VMware's goodness and, and help VMware make money indirectly. So our right. goal is not to sell Eclipse. It's just to make life good for the Spring developers. Which I, I remember that. So that was Spring IDE, I think was the open thing. And then there was Spring Tool Suite. And then they put those back into one one thing and that became the Spring Tool Suite kind of, or maybe I'm getting this slightly wrong. And then- Yes, yeah, that's that's about right. Then there was the Groovy and Grails Tool Suite and the Spring Tool Suite. So it wasn't one thing you could get- No, they were two separate. Yeah, they were kind of two different kind of users, I think. Yeah. You could still install both into one Eclipse and just call it a day, or you could download two distributions outright from us. Yeah, um, yeah. And then it's and now it's the Spring Tools. So with Spring Tool Suite four, we just call everything the Spring Tools. Um, but Spring Tool Suite four was kind of a big deal, right? Because uh, we also, by at that point, had the insight to 
extract out the the auto completion, the support for property files, the configuration properties awareness, the hints, all that stuff. We had we had extracted it out so that it could be reused for language service for this then yeah. nascent burgeoning up and coming uh, editor from the our friends in Redmond called VS Code. So were you involved in that process? I mean, I'm sure you must have been, but what was your? Yeah, yeah, that's I. I was mostly the one who did that, I guess. Yeah. So, so the the properties editors that you have in VS Code, I I made those. Like, I created them out of nothing, basically. Nice. So, that are you the one that worked on the extraction into a language server? Yeah, that too. Yeah. So what was that like? I don't even know. So was Eclipse already built? Pretty, to be it's extracted? still not. How was that like? What do you mean, like uh, in terms of writing the code, or? Well, uh, how decomposable is Eclipse? How decomposable was our particular? So remember, we don't provide for the audience. If you don't touch it for a while, it decomposes. <laughs> I'm joking. No, no how, Eclipse. Uh, don't get me started on Eclipse, but the Eclipse APIs are horrible. Oh dear. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, the, but what we what what uh, what we did. So I implemented most of those those things without language servers in Eclipse first. They they existed before the language server things came. Right. And then I kind of I I created the language server as a Spring Boot app. And using LSP4J and LSP4E and on the Eclipse side for the client and VS Code client on the client side, and I've I sort of copied and pasted a lot of code from the old implementation and wrapped it up into something that's kind of looks like a language server. Right. But okay, so that's interesting. So, like for example, um, the Spring Boot team maintains the Spring Boot, the Spring Java formatter, right? And that in turn is powered by the Eclipse code formatter, which I always thought was a really- That's brilliant. not part of the, I don't think that's part of our, uh, that's not part of the language server. No, 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 separate. It's a Maven plugin and a Gradle plugin. But yeah. what is interesting to me about it is that it's a Maven plugin and a Gradle plugin that packages up the Eclipse code formatter. So when you hit command, shift F or whatever it is for formatting in Eclipse, um, that same formatter that everybody's used to using is now a Maven plugin that gets run automatically against your source code. And I always thought that was really brilliant, but apparently it was very difficult. The, the process of yeah, extracting the, the, out just... Eclipse APIs are like that. Like they're, they're, they make some kind of attempts at modularizing things, but it's always a bit imperfect. And right. I wouldn't say that's too surprising because anybody, anybody who is a bit of a developer probably knows that if you write a bunch of code and you'd never try it in a certain way, then it probably doesn't work in this way, right? So right. if you if you have a bunch of code, like Eclipse has, they, they try to separate things into these like plugins with UI bits and plugins with core bits, but Inevitably, some of the UI bits end up being dependent on by the core bits, and so, so the challenge with these things then is that 
there, the, the feeling I get from all those APIs is that really they were built for one thing only, and that is to make Eclipse work, the whole thing, right? right? And if you try to lift them out, then there is a whole hard work required to figure out how to disentangle it from the rest of Eclipse. Right. So going back to what you were doing, you were, let's take the, let's take the, uh, forget about Java for a second, just the property file, right? Application properties in Spring Boot. Um, that's a, that's not Java syntax. That's not Java source code. That's just. Yeah. Like the, for, for an example of the kind of thing you're asking about, I guess, is Eclipse has this uh, iDocument interface to represent documents and a whole yeah. complicated implementation of documents with document regions and document formatting and all kinds of sort of uh, efficient representation of documents when you apply edits to them. Because that's actually an interesting data structure if you think about it. Like how can you efficiently make one character change in the middle of a file without like rewriting the whole, if you just take a naive approach, right? Yeah. You have a big array, with all the text in it, but that's not going to work very well. Like if you have a very large file and you your user types one character in the middle and you want to add this character in the middle of this huge array, it's not going to be a good idea, right? So <laughs> yeah. you have to come up with a clever, uh, a, a clever representation, a good representation that makes it possible to do efficiently things like add a character in the middle yeah, I, I, I'm sure that, I, yeah, it never even occurred to me, but yeah, right, it makes sense to hear about it. So, so Eclipse has those kind of data structures, but they're very eclipsy. so you can't kind of just take them out and use them. So I had to find a solution for that, and I used some library, which has a sort of uh, persistent string okay. representation, which is... So, uh, so persist, but persistent is an interesting word because if you don't say what you mean, nobody knows what you mean because it can be mutable strings. Yes, yes. So a persistent data structure is a data structure that's completely immutable, basically. It doesn't it mean is. it's like another meaning of persistent is like a persistent database or something, right? Something that stays. Right. But, uh, for a data structure, when we say persistent, what it usually means is that's immutable. So if you have a, a, a let's, for a simple example, would be like a binary search tree. Right? right. In a binary search tree, you can add elements to the tree and you could have a sort of imperative, mutable implementation of that, which means that when you insert an element into the tree, the tree is actually changed, is mutated. Right. Right. And that means the old tree no longer exists, right? Yeah. The tree is now changed. You can never but, step into the same river twice. So uh, in this case, is it more efficient? Or that seems like a lot of garbage collection, right? If you have to throw away the whole tree every time a character is added. Well, you don't throw away the whole tree. Like the, well, that that's that. That, that's that's a whole interesting research, research field in computer science too. Like, right. But uh, you, you, so immutable data structures are generally, they're provably less efficient in a sense. Like there are things that you cannot do as efficiently, but they can, they can, uh, they can be very efficient still. 
and Java, I mean, modern garbage collector. So, for example, the so with the with, with the example of a binary tree, right? So, right, your intuitions about trees are operations that go through a path are logarithmic, right? Right. So, for example, inserting an element in a tree, even in a persistent data structure, which is used to represent it by a tree, would would be log n in terms of uh, time consumption, right? How right. much time it takes to find the right place. But also in terms of memory, you don't have to copy the whole tree. You only basically copy the nodes on the path and you reuse parts of the tree in your new tree. So there, and because the data structures are persistent, immutable, it's safe to basically point to sections of the old tree and the new tree, which means that your new tree is not a completely new tree. It's only a new tree for the pieces that have been changed. Ah, okay, that's what you. So you, you're creating you're creating pointers to the old structure, just creating a new view on the right. old data. And there's a whole like, there's a whole like, yeah. creative endeavor there to figure out efficient ways to represent this. Like for, for example, for for text buffers, these kind of things, there are very complicated data structures that basically represent diffs. So think about how Git works, right? I want to. It hurts me. So Git is is similar like that. It's kind of uh, your nodes. It's basically representing. It doesn't represent all the versions that you ever had, right? Right. It represents the latest version and the differences between them. Sure. But you can create any version that ever existed by applying the differences, and you can yeah. you can move around. What is your point of reference, basically? And that's how mo many of these data structures works like that. Like, right. For, for example, it, it, one very fairly simple uh, but efficient way to represent text buffers in an editor is, is, a, is not one array, but two arrays. Hmm. You split, basically split the text down the middle. OK. Like right. a binary search tree? So. So the assumption be no, no, just two arrays instead of one. Okay. It's kind of like two. So it, with a little bit of space on the edge, so you can easily append, right? Okay. What is the problem is you can't easily add text in the middle, so you split it in the middle. Right? Now right. you can add text in the middle, it's just as long as you don't move too far from the point. So, but that fits very well with a user editing a text file, right? Because right. I'm typing text, I'm adding one character, and then I'm adding another character, and then I'm adding another character. But I, all those characters are added near the same place, right? Oh, wow. So okay. it's like your text is basically the, the meaning of these two arrays is like, the meaning is the string by appending those two things. That's your text. Right. But if you keep adding text near the same point, it's efficient because you can always append it to one of the two arrays. Right. Prepender. And if you move a few characters, it's not a big deal. You just kind of move some of the characters from one array to the other. Right. Okay. But so that's, that's one, double. one of those clever data structures, I would say. But there is way more complicated ones. There is so usually what they do these these uh, persistent data structures. What they do is they they be they be lazy in a way. Like yeah. they don't update the data structure. They try to update as little as possible until there is a need to access something or to change something. 
then they will kind of rebalance it so it supports that use case. And as long as you're doing similar things, it kind of keeps working well. Okay, so, so Eclipse provides that out of the box, but you said in order to implement these language servers, you had to re-implement or discover? Well, I, I, I searched on the internet for a bit until I found a library that had something for me. And wow. the library I ended up picking was called Javolution or something, which has a bunch of persistent data structures in it. Wow. One of them is a representation of persistent strings. I don't I don't know how it's implemented. And I I really don't care that much. Like I just want something that works. Yeah. And too inefficient. And that's what I use to replace Eclipse document data types. So was this process actually was it was the process of extracting the functionality from Eclipse? Did it help you better define the boundaries of your code and to make more clear the interface by which something else should then consume it? Like for me, that sounds like it would be a very clean, gratifying process because you could. It could have been, but it maybe it wasn't. Like because we, the way I did most of it was I started by copying uh, all our unit tests basically, and my goal was just to get the unit tests back up and running. Okay. So. And then I implemented some harnessy code around it that basically ran the exact same tests with a language server as a backend instead of wow. Eclipse. And then I implemented most of it by basically just taking most of the code we've written and adding some scaffolding around it. <laughs> to support the protocol. Yeah, I mean, where it made sense and it wasn't too hard, I would change the APIs a little bit, but mostly the language servers we have right now are still very eclipsy in a way. Okay, but you've done it with by extracting a lot of the stuff. Yeah, out it's from completely Eclipse. an independent thing now, right? Wow. But okay. it has an interface called iDocument in it. Which has very similar methods than Eclipse I document. I just implemented it in a different way. I see. Okay, so that makes I, I guess I can kind of see that for um property files, right? Property files, you can they're self-contained. It wouldn't be hard to re-implement the grammar and the parser for that. But how what about Java, right? If like you've got a Java language server. To what extent does your language server providing Spring Boot, you know, integration interact with another language server like the one that's provided for Java? Yeah, that's that's actually a, a very good question because but that's a scenario that's not very well supported by language servers because, I mean, language servers are like the way it's designed. The the whole protocol is kind of assumes a independent standalone entity like right. a language server there is no the, the the language server protocol does not provide some well-defined mechanism for one language server to ask questions of another one so uh -huh. so what means is basically if if we have a java language server and now we want to make a spring boot language server we have a problem because we want to parse all the ASTs, but the Java language server does that too. So now we're doing both. Both of us are now doing that basically. Hmm. Is there no way to share 
there there are ways but they're not like there's nothing standard like so so you can thank alex alex boyko for much of this stuff because we have some ways to tie into to the, the so the 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 java language server is actually an eclipse plugin right it's or actually no it's not even an eclipse plugin it's like a miniature eclipse installation oh, totally yeah that's what i understood an osgi thing like but, oh, yeah and what the vs code plugin for the java language server does is it it allows you to package up a jar file which is an eclipse plugin and include this in your plugin and put an entry in the package json of your vs code extension that says i've got this java code that i would like you to add to yourself and then the java language server will happily add this to its code as if it's an Eclipse plugin, because the Java language server is really a little Eclipse. Right. So it can have Eclipse plugins. So our VS Code extension contributes a little Eclipse plugin to the Java language server, and that's how we can communicate with it. Oh, wow. So somebody, so a third party can add to the existing plugins, like manifest of plugins to load. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So you got plugins configuring plugins within plugins. Well, it's kind of sick in a way. <laughs> it is. It's, it's but, uh, but I was joking like with, with the folks on my team, I say, well, I thought when we were building Eclipse plugins, things were difficult. <laughs> yeah. Now we're now. building, now we're doing the same thing with this extra things around it with package JSON files and manually build jar files that get loaded by another thing that's not even us and we don't control and we don't have any idea what its target platform is so it's <laughs> it's uh it's like this it's like way worse in a way like in eclipse plugin it's kind of simple comparatively right. you just write your plugin and and you install it and done in yeah. this world it's like you're you're creating an Eclipse plugin, which you have to create some custom build scripty process to build it, which is uh, some Maven Tyco build, which is not the standard kind of Maven thing. It's very complicated. And then, what? sorry, what's the name of the build? So so I the way you build Eclipse plugins, the state of the art building Eclipse plugins in CI builds is using Maven, right? But uh, you don't just use Maven, you use a special plugin, Maven plugin called Tyco. How do you spell that? T-I-C-H-O. Okay. And yeah, it's like everything in the Eclipse world is named after heavenly bodies, right? So Tyco is a moon of some planet. I don't know which one. But so yeah, it's that thing is like... Uh, understands all Eclipse thing and OSGI things. So it knows about target platforms and plugin dependencies and all those things that are not Java, basically, but right. to know about when you build Eclipse plugins, plugin oh, XML files, manifest MF, OSGI manifests, uh, all those things, package exports, package imports, package, yeah. So, and then you build a plugin using that, 
Yeah. And you build your your own language server. You build a VS Code thing. So you have all this. You have at least three things that are built in different ways, and you throw them all together somehow, wrap it in a package JSON, and and you have an Eclipse plugin wrapped inside of a VS Code extension. <laughs> well, it gets loaded by another Eclipse plugin. Wow. Another VS Code extension. Oh, so the wow. Okay, wow. And in the end of the day, it's it's very hard to get it running and debugging it too, because you can't just run that thing because someone else is running it, right? Right. Uh, that that piece of Eclipse plugin we have it's very hard to debug because we we don't run it ourselves. It's the Java language server that runs it. Oh wow! You're inserting yourself into somebody something else's startup process, basically. Yeah. Inside of a which you have to interact with. In but terms it's a of good a, thing that that we are a little bit familiar with Eclipse because otherwise there's no way we'd be able to do that. <laughs> wow! Yeah, this is see this is why I'm so glad you did all this because it's it it has worked right. Like I just said, there's a blog out there that uses the work that you all did to make this work in Emacs, right? It's obviously possible. Um, and likewise, there's the fact that I can just load VS Code today and use the Spring Boot uh, what is it, extension, I think, or extension pack or something like that, um, and VS Code, and I get all the stuff, you know, I get the stuff you worked on plus all the Java stuff uh, all just built in. It just works. That's It works. I mean, millions and millions of people are using it every day, right? Uh, so it's, it clearly worked, even though it sounds, from your perspective, it sounds like it was a lot, uh, a lot of like duct tape and bailing wire. Um, yeah. but, uh, it works clearly. So congratulations on that. And thank well, you. Also there, you can't, you have to thank the Red Hat guys who built oh, yeah, the hybrid server because yeah. they're, and I got, you got to say, you got to have respect for what they did because it's, uh, 100%. it's quite a feat what they did. Like they, the, the VS code extension that, I mean, it's getting to a point where you might almost want to say like now I can switch from Eclipse to VS Code and not not be sorry that I'm not having this feature and not having this feature and not having because they're they're got they now have type hierarchies and they have most of the refactorings and they have yeah, pretty much if you really wanted to today it's viable to say I'm just gonna code Java and VS Code. Yeah. It is an amazing experience. And the fact that VS Code didn't exist, what, 10 years ago, five years ago? I mean, it went from, because uh, remember, there was a there was Adam. Do you remember GitHub Adam? Uh, it was a text editor that came out around the same time, an IDE from them. And a, a, oh, Adobe. Oh, Atom. Atom. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I thought yeah. it was Adam. Oh, sorry, Atom. Uh, yeah, Atom, yeah. right? Like the the little molecules. Right. Um, and then Adobe has um, brackets. Yeah. Well, uh, there was a time like before Atom, our team built a very similar editor called Scripted. Scripted? Oh, is that like a web thing or something? It was like Atom, pretty much. Like you launch it from the command line, very lightweight. And uh, I liked it when we worked on it. It was built in JavaScript. And wow. it was meant for, yeah, 
you can still Google that. It's still floating around. It's not usable anymore. Like it's dead. But sad. Um, it's, it's, oh, I mean, we couldn't do it. Like we weren't equipped. No resources. Not enough people. And then right. Apple came along and stole our thunder. We said, "Yeah, okay, well, that's it. Okay, that's fine. Let them do it. That's good." Right. We went back to Eclipse. Right, and then there was a. Adobe Brackets, which is a text editor as well, around the same time. Uh, yeah, and then yeah. and now, you know, I think all of them, you know, it's just VS Code. VS Code is now the most widely used text well, editor. Yeah, what, what happened to scripted with Atom happened to Atom with VS Code. <laughs> they just uh, didn't keep up. And I think the difference is VS Code came to play with a open-ish component model, extension model, so it's possible to leverage. Atom the, has that too, right? Did they support language servers? They did, yeah. Okay, well, maybe. Yeah, but I don't know. Were, were, but there were some things that they interpreted differently, and there was some strife. Like, so I had some discussions with... Oh, some... yeah, that's right. They did. Emacs, Atom, VS Code all support language servers. But language servers came from VS Code. That was a Microsoft thing, right? So it figures out the, the inertia would be behind them. But that that's... I mean, that, that part... Changed my opinion of Microsoft a bit because I, what they did for VS Code, I think they're they're very, they're very good players. I think in terms of open source VS Code, yeah. and they're, I mean, I'm sure there's still a little bit of strategic thinking there about. I hope how, so. How it comes into the Microsoft and how they're going to make money out of it, but it's sure. really quite. You can't really criticize it too much in terms of no. supporting the community and letting everybody play. Oh, quite the contrary, I'm a big fan. I've, I, I, you know, I've had countless people on the show there, and all there's, that. There's one thing that that uh, that's kind of a sore, let's say, a sore spot or a sore or a fly in the soup or whatever is. Yeah. They, they, there are some very. Uh, it's hard to know, but there are some very funky terms on the VS Code marketplace, forcing right. people to make their own marketplaces because they have some legalese that says that you're the only valid use of the VS Code marketplace is to install plugins into VS Code. So if you're doing something like uh, the Thea, have you heard of Thea? No, what's that? It's like uh, another web, it's based on uh, was it came from Eclipse Orion? I guess the so it's another another. It's very similar to think of GitHub Code Spaces, like they were they were there first. They did that first, and they're right. still out there. They're a bunch of smart guys from Germany, and they they have they had something like this, like several nice. years ago, and it's also. They were trying to be compatible with VS Code, so you can install VS Code plugins into Thea, into a Thea. But the the annoying thing to them is you you're not legally allowed to just get the plugins from the marketplace and install them into Thea. So that created uh, this whole push for the Eclipse people to to basically create an open implementation of marketplace and set up their own marketplace. But it's kind of a lost cause, right? Nobody, well, nobody's first thought is to publish plugins on the Thea marketplace, right? No, no. So, um, and it's called the open. Uh, what is it called? Open 
open marketplace or something there. I forget the name, but it's not technically a marketplace for TIA plugins. It's a marketplace for VS Code type of plugins. Like, right. But there's they try their best to get as many of the plugins in there as possible by, and they can't get them from the marketplace because of the annoying terms from Microsoft. Right. So they have to build them from source. So they troll through GitHub and try to find all the plugins and build them with the script oh. and put them That's into pity. the marketplace. And they ask people like us if we want to put our plugins in the marketplace. And so we do, but you know. But that's one place where I could say they could have been more open, but that's a very strategic thing. Like that kind of pulls a lot of the focus onto a platform that they benefit from directly, whereas other people kind of left a little bit out in the cold if they want to play. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think they've done more good than not though. And um, certainly VS Code has, it's been, it's it's not like anybody came to us and forced us to build language servers. Ditto for Red Hat. By the way, going back to Red Hat, that that language server for Java, um, I was I always talk about this because at some point there was people from Google, there's people from Pivotal, and now it's the Spring Team at VMware, Tanzu. Uh, but you know, there's people from Google, people from Red Hat, people from Microsoft, I think. I mean, there's people from all these different companies that have contributed to the Java experience on VS Code. And I can't think of any other context in which those giant companies and their pooled resources would work together on one thing, you know? Uh, so Microsoft has done something really special here. You know, they've they've captured a lightning in a bottle, I think, with VS Code. So yeah, I'm, yeah. Well, I'm with you on that. The, the, pro, the whole process around language server protocol is quite okay. Like, yeah. the I feel like when you go there and you discuss things that they're not they're not very microsoft centric there i mean it, it's really open an open process i like that yeah um so that's that is i mean we we've just talked we we just gave people a very very deep dive into the uh the the, the what's what you know how the how the meat's made in the you know in the factory of the butcher but what is what is it you're working on these days like what's your current thing uh, well, I'm still maintaining some on and off some bug fixes in STS, right? And uh, the VS Code extensions is kind of ongoing maintenance there. Uh, and like I said, that I'm just even just yesterday I was onboarded into the Tanzu VS Code, the Tanzu Desktop Tools team. So. Cool. I don't know yet what that's going to be, but the I'll probably will be working on some IntelliJ plugins for the first time ever in my hey. life. Oh, I can't wait. So we'll have to have you back in six months or a year or whatever so we can talk about whatever it is you're working on right now. Um, are you on the internet? And if so, uh, do you want to be found? And if so, where are you on the internet? I'm not really. I mean, I if you Google my name, you'll find me, but... I don't Twitter or stuff like that or Facebook. So, um, so it's K R I S space D E space V O L D. -E the best place to find stuff that I did probably is if you go on GitHub. GitHub. Okay. What's your GitHub username? A K D folder. Okay. Um, I, it's, I, it's my VMware email address. K 
JD Boulder. At VMware.com. If people, but if people have questions, they should go to GitHub issues or Stack Overflow, surely. Uh, yeah, I, I answer questions on Stack Overflow now and again, but not, not so much of late, I guess. So GitHub then, is that right? Or do you want email? That's what I guess what I'm trying to say. Oh, if people want to reach out. Uh, yeah. I, it's not a problem I've had in the past. People don't really want to talk to me, I think. Well, they should. Yeah. You're awesome. If you have problems with any of the stuff that that work on, that usually means you raise a GitHub ticket and you will talk to me, probably. Yeah. Uh, and, and and talking to you is a great thing. So I'm I'm grateful we got to got to chat a little bit today. I've eh, I, we we didn't even begin to scratch the surface of all the uh, of all the stuff you've been doing, but we I I cannot believe just um, what an incredible impact you have on these tools. And, and you're one of those people where people use your stuff. Millions of people use your stuff every day. And I doubt they've, uh, they, they give much thought to who, you know, what amazing people like yourself work on it to make it work, you know, and, uh, I'm super grateful for you and, uh, you know, thank you for taking your time today and joining me for the show. No problem. I, I enjoyed it. I, I was a bit skeptical at first. I could find anything interesting to talk about, but, Oh, that wasn't a problem. <laughs> no, no, this is quite the contrary. I want to do another installment, but we, we've already gone well past an hour and I, I just feel like we could definitely do another one uh, easily. So let's do it. Let's do it sooner rather than later. Okay. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Have a good day. A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm Josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.